Welcome to this episode of Dental IQ. I'm your host, Fabio Alfieri, and joining me this week is Dr. Rohit Chaturvedi, a dentist based in Perth who is pushing the boundaries in one of the biggest dental organizations in Australia. Dr. Rohit is a dentist and clinical advisor for the National Dental Care Organization. He has a special interest in minimal intervention dentistry and for also using digital tools to better educate his community. Stay tuned to listen to Dr. Rohit talk about his time in the public health space, reducing the biological cost of dentistry, and also how he's striving to make more of an impact in the Australian dental industry. Dr. Rohit, thank you so much for joining us on Dental IQ this week. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. No, honestly, our whole team's been really excited to have you on this week. And I've got a lot of really interesting points because um, I know you're passionate about so many different sort of intricates, uh, intricacies in dentistry. And I really want to unpack that today. But, you know, just so our audience can get to know you a little bit first, Rohit, let's, let's start with you. Um, now, you're in Perth, WA, and you moved over from the UK. Uh, talk to me about your time in the UK and sort of what piqued that interest in dentistry. Oh, it was funny. Like it was never, I never really got into like dentistry was, I wasn't really aware of dentistry for a really long time. Like growing up, it wasn't something that I never had orthodontics or having major dental issues or anything like that at all. I was really minimal impact on me to be quite honest with you. But my father was you know, a surgeon and um, a general surgeon who went, to, went on to become an oncoplastic breast surgeon. And so healthcare was always massive for me, you know, like that, that thing when you see patients that like you went onto the ward or you saw patients like you know your family members treated and they go oh you know your father had this big impact on my life you know he saved my life he changed my life and whatever i think seeing that stuff really pointed me towards healthcare anyways in general and i think that's why i studied medicine to start with um and, and i from a young age thought like i want to be a surgeon and mm. that was the path i initially took and it was only through being jaded by um well, the health system in the UK that I chose to leave um, uh, that profession after four years of practicing and doing wow. um, core surgical training in the UK. Four and years. Yeah, so I did. I did four. So after graduation in two thousand six from Nottingham, I um, did two years general rotations and two years of what we call core surgical training, and right. then did my membership exams to the Royal College of Surgeons in Glasgow. And but I was just so jaded by the system and kind of broken by it. That I said to my wife at the time, you know, like either we, um, like I went to Upsticks and go to Australia and it wasn't the right time for her and she didn't want to go just because of family, um, elderly, you know, grandparents. And she was in the middle of her GP training and she was in a really good program and she didn't want to go. And so I was like, well, either we go or I change career. And so, um, yeah, I changed career. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 and I think it was that. But at the time I was looking at going into like things like management consultancy and big pharma, which is a very common path for medics who are leaving in the UK. And, mm. and, um, but the problem was it was really hard to beat that pull of healthcare. You know, you feel like you're making a difference, feel like you're doing something. And I loved surgery. So I love that. Like I love day surgery and small surgery procedures. And during my training, I had contact with two colleagues um, who really turned my eyes um, one was a girl called uh, Nabila Ahmed, who used to call Super Nabs, and she was a dual qualified um, uh, you know, dentist and doctor. So she did dentistry at Guy's uh, and she did uh, medicine at Sheffield. Wow. And she'd done many years in MaxFax. But she, when she came out, we graduated the same year. We did the same two years of general rotations together in the same hospitals. And um, like she was unbelievable. She was one of these people who was always fighting a good fight, standing up for the junior doctors um you know wouldn't stand for bullying in, in in the workplace and like um and like amazing or, organized was part of every committee organizing everything like she was this superhuman mm. and i remember like she kind of got me thinking about dentistry and then i worked with a guy in um and while i was doing ent in, in one hospital i met this guy called pantanaja who's a an oral surgeon now and he's just done a phd in facial pain from aris university in Denmark and he's like amazing guy but like he was a singly qualified guy uh dentist who went on to do um oral surgery which is a mm -hmm. which is a speciality where um similar to maxillofacial surgery but a bit more just into oral surgery not dual qualified but he yeah. um he uh really um got me thinking about dentistry because he, he asked me like you know what do you enjoy like and I was like talking about like, oh, I like day surgery like things and he goes well consider dentistry as a career because you know it's like doing lots of day surgery and you are interacting with patients and you can make a difference to people's lives and stuff i think through those interactions i looked at it and then i applied to king's because they had uh king's college london had a three-year program for 
uh, medical graduates, which was only, as I say, it's only three years long and it's only eight places every year. I wasn't really mm. holding out much hope of getting in. And eight I got in. Eight places a year. Yeah. So, in the whole so it's essentially, it's fast tracked because you're already a medical professional, essentially. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So they, they, they targeted um, doctors who basically wanted to do, um, wanted to get dual qualified to do right. oral medicine or um, oral medicine, oral pathology or oral maxillofacial surgery. So it was a kind of a, a to speed up that process. Um, and, um, but um, yeah, no, I got in, it was, it was fantastic. And uh, those three years have had a profound impact on my life. And, um, and, and I went to somewhere like King's College London where I met absolutely inspirational people who weren't just, it wasn't just about oral health. It wasn't just about, you know, or health in general. It was about becoming a better human being. It was about treating people. It was about, um, yeah, it, it, I, I learned so much um, mm. there that time. Uh, and so I said, it wasn't, it wasn't, it, for me, it wasn't like I, I met this dentist when I was a kid and yeah. I got there. Like it, it was very, it was just, it was just a kind of a, just a chance of meeting people and meandering and coming to this point. Mm. but I never thought I'd stay in dentistry for more than five years because <laughs> I, I, I've done a lot of things in my time so like I kind of thought like I'd be there for five years and now I'm you know I can't remember now well I was graduated 2013 so I'm like what eight years in so I've practiced full-time dentistry longer than I practiced full-time medicine wow. by a long shot talk to me about making that decision between switching from medicine to dentistry that must have been so tough especially after having practiced already for four years I'm not gonna lie. I actually cried when I handed in my resignation. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I think I actually, I think I felt like I was letting go of something, like that I'd worked so hard because it would always been this thing that I um, had gone on, and I'd, I was, I think I was the first um, senior. We, we call them senior house officers, but I used to have this dual role where I acted up a level as a registrar in the urology department, and they'd always said to me like, "They've never had a senior SHO who has then." not gone on to become urology consultant mm. uh and he's left and i was the first one kind of doing this and handing my resignation and but i was just so jaded by the system like um and, and life in the national health um it wasn't good it wasn't good for my mental state yeah it wasn't yeah. good for my relationships uh with my you know with my other half at the time um we never saw each other i really was i was watching life kind of pass me by and um, and I kind of looked at my boss and I thought, I don't, I just don't want your life. Like, I, I just really don't want your life at all. Like mm. you know, in the hospital all day, every day, you were very much a martyr to your cause um, and a martyr to the hospital. Like, you know, you need to sacrifice everything. Yeah. Um, you know, if your boss asked you like, what hobbies did you have? You know, if your answer was anything other than surgery, it was the wrong answer. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. What you love is surgery. You love mm. surgery. You love the hospital. That's where you want to be. You don't want to. Mm don't want to see your friends family you don't want to play football you don't want to do anything you just want to do surgery and i think that culture i found toxic for, for me personally yeah. and i admire anyone who does it like my as in my father was a surgeon and i admire him i admire my family i admire people who take that career path on um but yeah i, I it wasn't for me and it wasn't mm. going to be it wasn't a good place for me and i think when i made the decision to i think i would have I wanted to come over here to Australia to do that just because I had friends who'd come over who said the culture was different and things. I thought um, like that might be a good fit. Um, but then when it wasn't to be, I knew I had to go somewhere else and do something else. Mm. And I think like big farm, I think, and like, and things like um, management consultancy, I think it was, although my, I love those, I, I love those ideas and they're the part of that that really appeals to me in the, strategic sense and the business sense and all those things. I love problem solving, which again is why I like things like dentistry and surgery. I love problem solving. Mm. But um, but yeah, I, I think like that idea would probably not work long-term. I think healthcare was always something that was big in my life. Um, and and I, I love the fact, I love that interaction and making a difference to people's lives in that sense. I think that was something I always loved. So going dentistry was a good option for me. Um, yeah. Though I didn't quite understand that at the time. I appreciate that more now. Um, but yeah, no, and, uh, and I said, I got into this course, this three-year course, I met some amazing people. Um, and you know, I was surrounded by inspirational people at King's, you know, um, and that people like, you know, that people have touched the lives of even like dentists I know here who have become like, you know, big in their field. They've all been touched by the sliders, their lives have been touched sorry, by, the, by these same guys, um, over it, uh, when I studied. And so it's, it's I feel very lucky. 
Mm. So coming out of King's College, did you then practice in the UK or did you immediately make a transition over to Australia? Uh, just 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 one year, one year one in the year. UK, um, one year in the national health. And that wasn't great for me either. Like, I'm not going to lie mm. to you. Like um, I had a great, great mentor um, who was a lady called Shomna Chohan and she was, um, uh, it was a, it was funny. I was, um, I was actually, I was working four days. So we had, so Monday to Thursday, I was in the practice. Friday was a teaching day. Um, so we it was all, so we were all like um, new grads, first year new grads, and and um, to work in national health, you had to do a mentored year. Mm-hmm. And so you you were assigned a trainer, and in four days a week in practice, and one day a week you were um, doing like learning stuff. Or you, you had stuff organized for you. And then two days of the week, I was also working as a doctor in the local ED. Wow. So I would finish work at five o'clock on a Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, at six o'clock, I was in the local ED and I was working till two in the morning. Uh, and then at eight or nine o'clock, I'd be back at work, depending on where I was meant to be. Um, Jeez. Uh, and, uh, and it was great. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. Like the first year as a dentist did not cover my bills. Mm. Uh, it didn't cover my mortgage. It didn't cover like, you know, the rents and things. And like, so like, I had to do something else and and so like i worked but it was really funny because my wife was a local gp i was working in the ed department as a registrar uh and i was also a local dentist and so it was really weird we had patients who covered all three of those things oh, and we found, right. sometimes we find that we shared patients or we walked out we walking down um you know in the high street and it'd be like people like oh my you you're you're both <laughs> <laughs> like it was just a it was a trippiest thing like yeah um, yeah it was a trippy year but i think my wife had become jaded with life in the nhs as well um mm-hmm. at that point and just a few negative interactions i think in general practice and stuff and so i wanted to try something different and so i said like look should we try this australia thing and we did and i at the time thought my wife would miss home too much mm. and we'd be back after a year Within a, within a few hours or days even, we were just enamored by life in Perth, by life in WA, by life in Australia. Yeah. Um, yeah. That we just, nev- we've been here for seven years now. We're Australian citizens. Uh, we've had another child born here in Australia. So our first was born in London. Our second was born here in Perth. Um, and yeah, we love it. We, just, mm. we absolutely love everything about life here. So that, that first year in dentistry, the financial side of it, you know, aside, how was the work for you? Were you enjoying that as a career compared to surgery? I think it's hard because in, you know, I felt I came out of um, dental school with an amazing knowledge. I felt I came out of King's College London, like so well-trained. So I really, really felt top of my game after my final exams and things. Mm. You know, we were worked hard. We worked really, really hard. And um, I, I just felt like I knew what I was talking about. And then a year in the national health, I think, really de-skills you. Uh, with that, I don't mean to, I don't know, I mean I don't mean to say that to be mean or anything, but the problem is you have to start learning a new way of you learn this idealistic, ideal ivory tower way mm-hmm. of practicing dentistry in dental school, and then the reality of working in social health and with certain constraints, really you realize that you can't work in that ideal way that you were told to work. Mm. You suddenly have to get through patients and get through numbers. And suddenly it becomes about like seeing like 30 patients a day and 40 patients a day. Like in your mentored, wow. mentored year, it's not, you're not expected to do that. You know, there's no, um, there are no targets for you or such, but, but you know, by the end of that year, you've got to do that to survive. Mm. And so that's a big thing that's playing in your mind. So how do I get through this? And there were so many rules and regulations and loopholes and things. And so you've got to, like, you've got to know how to understand the game that you're in. And it just becomes like this whole thing about like, it almost becomes like trying to learn how to game the system and things. It was just like, it just sits so uneasy and so unwell. Like this is not how healthcare should be. And it's not fulfilling Um, at the end of the day, right? Because I'm assuming that's why it was so jading and exhausting is because, I mean, you've just worked so hard to be able to, you know, study and learn and become qualified and you don't actually get to provide the care that you want to. And and that's how I felt. I felt like, you know, like free isn't always the best thing in the world, you know, like free, unfortunately, like, you know, time and quality is going to cost at the end of the day and it comes at some cost to someone someone's got to pick up that bill mm. unfortunately like you know with a i get it like you know with like massive like population and high dental need and then only certain budget like you know you've got to make it go a certain direction you've got, you've got to make it go as far as possible but that problem becomes then like patients don't get the best quality of care 
and you've got to compromise somewhere. So it becomes a really like a, di a difficult system. And, and you know, you got to really understand, like get a good grasp of your ethics and how your things work and stuff. I know so there'll be some people who will completely disagree with me um, and they'll stand by the NHS, but as a person who's worked as a nurse, a doctor and a dentist in that system, um, I'm, I've never been convinced by it. Like um, I appreciate it being there. I appreciate access to care and I appreciate access to health. I think that's, it's an amazing thing. And I think the people who work in that system are amazing. Like there's no doubt about it. That, that whole system doesn't function um, for any other reason than the people within that system, the nurses, the doctors, the dentists, the physios, the, um, the therapists, the OHTs, everyone like mm -hmm. um uh you know uh and you know the the ot's and everyone it's it's it really depends all those people just give and give and give and give into the system and but it, you know that's indoctrinated to you the minute you come into university and you're studying any kind of health aspect you're indoctrinated to become a martyr to that system um and and uh so i mean i wasn't a big fan of it right um, and that, i think that's what pushed me out of it to be quite honest with you mm, so You've made the move to Perth then, and you've yeah. you know managed to escape the NHS. What's the what's the first step for you here in Australia? So I met I met a guy called um, uh, David Bailey and uh, his wife Susie Bailey, and they owned like a mini corporate in Perth called DB Dental, mm -hmm. and they were in um, uh, one of these dental fairs. They used to go and they used to recruit like people like me, basically jaded British dentists, to come over to Australia. That was their whole thing, and. Um, uh, and I was there in my full-on tweed uh, suit and like you know, three-piece suit, pocket watch, um, big handlebar moustache. Um, the stereotype. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, yeah. I, I was a member of the handlebar moustache club London. I was a total mm -hmm. dandy. Um, I still am some of it, but like, uh, but I, I, I remember I saw that. I think, I think we're very surprised them to meet someone like me and stuff. And then, and I had tortoise shell glasses, the whole works, so the whole mm -hmm. thing. And then, um. And then I remember like, I met them and I, I was, I was really keen to, to come out. And they said to me, like, look, you know, they, they very much had a treat, treat me mean, keep me keyed attitude. They were like, look, there's a lot of people want to come out to Australia. And that, that was true. And they said, it might take a while. Like, you know, you're not, it's not going to happen overnight. And so they were really kind of like, I'm trying to manage my expectations. Mm. And then um, I think someone had, um, uh, pulled out of a move for whatever reason a few months down the line after I met them and they contacted me and said like look because I was constantly on the phone to them and sending emails saying like I want to make this happen I'm serious I'm not messing around and they sent me an email and um, said like are you serious because we've got a position that's opened up if you want it and we booked our flight we were here in like three four months later um, got all our paperwork done visas sorted out everything done we were so keen and um never visited australia before never been to australia never been to perth we just came out and i i always say to everyone i still remember the first day i arrived i still remember the mornings like so david and susie put on this um this uh car to pick us up from the airport and <laughs> the driver says to us like do you want to take the, the we go to an airbnb in east perth and they're like do you want to take the long route or the short route and i, and I was like uh we'll take we'll take the we'll take the, we'll take the, the scenic route and um, it was like, I don't know, seven in the morning or something. And he'd drive us alongside the river. And we're driving alongside the river. And it was just stunning. There's like the river, the sun's up, the palm trees are there. Mm. And I, I just, I felt like Pretty Woman in that sea where she got down Beverly Hills. <laughs> or like, or yeah. it was, or even like, um, and, or I always say like Axel Foley when he comes into Beverly Hills, that scene and the music's playing and the palm trees are up there. And I felt like that. And it was just like, I just come from like, we just flown in from London we were in Birmingham and it was like gray and it was raining. It was like October, middle of October and it was miserable. And I just arrived at this paradise. Everyone's smiling and everyone's on the water doing water sports and things. It was ridiculously early in the morning we're on their bikes and the Pelotons. And I just thought like, where is this weird and eerie place I've come to? And mm. it was just, it was fantastic. And is that the moment that you knew that you, you're probably not going to head back to the UK, right? It's funny because within 24 hours, my wife said to me, I don't think I can go back home. <laughs> like, and, I, and my wife was like, she was, she's such a home person as well. She's so close to all her family. I was so shocked that my wife would ever say that to me. Um, so it, it, it was just like, it was amazing. Like we, we had like the most incredible, you know, 
first 24 hours, first week, first year. Um, like, you know, our, our daughter joined, like became, went, went to kindy and stuff and it was just incredible. Like yeah. it just, we met so many amazing people and I, w- I got to work in a place with some like really incredible people who inspired me as well. And I was so lucky. I fell into this really lovely um, place and this kind of um, with good people around me, yeah. Mm. So from that time at that clinic uh, to where you are now, so at the moment you've, you're working in your own clinic? No, I'm, I'm, I'm a corporate dentist. Uh, I'm a corporate preferred provider dentist. I'm very happy with it. Um, so I still work for the same company. I've been here for seven years. Um, I love that. I love the commitment I'm, to the cause. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, I, I, so it's funny, like if someone told me I was going to be a corporate dentist, I would have like, nah, not going to happen. Yeah. Um, but look, we, I mean, the, um, I really, I, I'm, I'm grateful to the old owners who um, uh, brought me over and gave, gave me that opportunity. And they put me in two stunning practices in Cottesloe and Claremont in mm. WA. And if anyone knows WA, they'll know like Cottesloe is an iconic place um, and uh, Cottesloe Beach and down the road is Claremont. It's another beautiful place and beautiful suburb. And um, I went, after the first couple of years, I went full-time from being split between two practices to doing full-time in Claremont. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we got bought out by um, a national corporate called NDC who are owned by a, so National Dental Care, mm-hmm. by a private equity fund. And, um, but basically they came in and they were amazing. Like they've just fully embraced doing dentistry a little bit different, being a different corporate. Um, they've got like, you know, we've got a dentist on the board of directors. Um, they um, have gone down the path of really investing in technology and investing in, um, you know, dentists to be mm. better dentists. Cause they've got this whole ethos about providing service in house. Like there's no KPIs, like all the things I feared about corporate dentistry, like having KPIs being, Someone, someone at the top dictating to me what I should be doing clinically yeah, that yeah. didn't sit well with me. I've never had to worry about, I've never had one day of that. Mm. And that something amazing. And I've actually found them to be like, I could go to them with my crazy wacky ideas and go like, I think we should do this. And they'd listen and they have listened and everything I've asked for, well, not everything, but most things I've asked for mm. within reason, I've actually pretty much got if I could justify them. Mm. Um, so I've had a I've had a really really positive experience of corporate dentistry and well, I, I'm I'm like don't get me wrong I understand like private practice dentistry there are good aspects of that or practice ownership there are good aspects of that but the reality is I think everything's got some you know downside you know it always feels like the grass is greener on the other side um, but the question is when you go you're swapping your pro- one set of problems for another set of problems like so yeah like nothing's perfect there are issues between corporate dental uh, working in corporate dental practice and preferred provider dentistry but even if i was a in a boutique practice that would have its own problems of being a practice either a practice owner or an associate within that kind of a practice Mm. and so i'll be training one set of problems for another it's just which set of problems suit me better Mm. um, and which set of positives do i prefer and um, at the moment i'm very comfortable i'm very grateful where i am i i see the other thing is I'm in a lovely area with amazing patients. Like I love serving the communities that I serve. I've got a book of like, I have a laugh and a giggle with all my patients, the majority, most of the time. Uh, you can't say everyone, no one can say everyone, but, uh, and I see their families and their friends. I get loads of referrals all the time. And, and, and so we have, we have a good old time. We have like, you know, it's, it's very hard to leave that kind of situation, I think. Mm. Definitely. And I mean, we were talking the other day about sort of corporate dental and you even mentioned that you were a big reason why the iTero system and digital dentistry was even introduced into their sort of organization. And I mean, for a business that size, that size to be so receptive over, you know, just what one of their dentists is proposing to them is it's incredible. So it's funny, we had, we had this whole thing, like, so um, when NDC came in, they said like, look, we want to get our long-term vision is to get all this digital into every practice. Um, and we're looking at scanners and I remember speaking to the CEO at the time, a guy called Gordon and saying to him, like, I really want an iTerra. And he's like, well, don't worry, it'll happen one day or whatever. We were trying to work out, we want like this system or the iTerra or another scanning system. They were looking at several without mm-hmm. naming the others. Uh, I think people can work that out for themselves what they are. <laughs> um, and, um, and I said, no, no, I really want this system. It was like, if you don't want to get it, that's fine. I'll buy it for myself. And he was just like, calm down, mate, just, just chill out. <laughs> and I was like, it's like, I was like, no, no, I honestly believe in it that much. And it took a bit of time, um, but, uh, and there were a lot of people who didn't, 
I, I wasn't, I was hardly doing any like clear aligners or anything at all. Like, I only did like maybe three cases a year and I wasn't doing like heaps of like, you know, um, indirect restorations and like crowns of veneers and bridges and all that kind of stuff or implants. And a lot of people kind of said, why do you want a scanner? Why do you want a 3D scanner? And I said, like, I want it as a communication tool. And I think people just laughed at me at that point. I think a lot of people just laughed at me. And then our general manager, um, who I'd spoken to about this, uh, a lady called Nikki Cox, she actually kind of saw something in it and actually trusted me with it and actually fought, you know, for me to have one and uh, and got me an initial, like, Itero. Um, and so we got this um, Itero in the practice and lo and behold, like, it just took off. Like, suddenly everything started jumping. And it was just because, and I, I have this honest belief that patients don't turn down treatment because, you know, they're neglectful, they don't care about their oral health. They turn it down because they don't understand. Mm. And if you can make a patient understand what's going on in their mouth, understand why they need treatment or what's going on, they're far more likely to get on board. And that's whether that's just like, you know, keeping under observation, stabilizing, or actually correcting and stabilizing, you know, they're more likely to engage with you. So I kind of found that that was the thing to do. And so it took off really well. And then I said, I want the next best one. There was a, there was a, I tell you, they got released when I got my one. At the same time, there was a better one that came out. And this one had near infrared and the ability to look at decay without x-rays and find decay. And I thought like, that just blew my mind. And so I said, I want this fancy one, which is double the cost of the one they bought me six months ago. And they just said to me like, right, you're, you're dreaming, mate. You've just <laughs> a near $30,000 scanner. And now you want a nearly $60,000 scanner, like six months later, you're, you're crazy. And I, I said to them, look, no, no, but this is how it's gonna work. This is the idea I've got, this is this vision I've got. And again, Nikki's turned around, Nikki turned around to me and she said to me like, right, like, why is this better? And our, you know, we've got a dentist as well on the, on our uh, board of directors, Anthony, and they both actually said to me like, why is this better? How are you make this work? And they just basically sat on a couple of phone calls. Attacks. They sat down with me and said like, look, right, put a proposal down on paper. So I wrote them a proposal. I wrote them like, you know, how I'd make the practice work. Um, how does he return on investment? Um, how is it going to benefit our patients, our dentists, our whole workflow? I wrote this document for them and um, they like loved it. And they presented this to their board directors. So they bought this new scanner for me. And then again, they saw that things just went super well. Like, you know, the feedback was phenomenal from patients. Um, we were flying and then I, I mean, they ended up getting like 25, signing up for 25 Iteros. And, um, and it was just one of those things like that just really took off. And then what happened was that I wrote an article in our in-house magazine about like digital dentistry and communication and how I use my iTero as a communication tool. And one of the iTero reps, uh, a guy called Aaron Hoff, uh, put it on LinkedIn and then it just went like what, like crazy. Like a load of the Align team got hold of it and they're like, oh my God, this guy gets it. Like, and, and, um, and then I got approached about being a speaker for Align and iTero and the restorative system. And, and the thing was, I wasn't doing anything fancy. I wasn't I wasn't doing like massive smile makeovers or anything. Mm. I just wanted to basically you know, empower patients to make better decisions for themselves. All I was looking to do was like take that, you know, change the locus of control. There was um, one of my, um, my wife's old mentors when she was doing GP training was a guy called uh, David Misselbrook. And, uh, and, and it was funny, like him, my wife, like got me think about this whole idea of the, the locus of control. Mm-hmm. You know, like you have patients who will talk about when things go wrong in their life and go wrong in their world, they'd be like, oh, it's because of this scenario or that scenario. And it was, it's always everything else around them. It's never because of them. And so it's changing that external locus of control to an internal locus of control, how my decisions impacted upon me. Mm. And that's what you're trying to do and facilitate in your conversations in a, in a consult. You're saying like, look, you know, I can only do so much. It's got, the, the, the change has got to come from you from within. Mm. So look, these are your options. And, you know, because it's very easy to talk about like decaying, oh, so my parents didn't make me brush enough when I was younger or floss, you know, um, my, because like, you know, the government doesn't subsidize healthy foods and makes me eat like, you know, convenience foods and the sugary treats and things like, you know, or because this was going on in my life and, I was, and, and so forth. And so, but rather than look at all that, look at the decisions you make and how that impacts upon you. Yeah. And, and I just put it back on there. 
I suppose it's exactly yeah. what you said. You're empowering them with information because, I mean, without that information, you know, they, they don't know what they're turning down or they don't know what they're opting in for. Exactly. And yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I think that, and that's why, like, I've, I, whenever I kind of do like these talks or whenever I like lectures, I'm, I always, one thing that I love lecturing about this idea, this concept of being an oral health coach. And it's funny, so my wife got into um, like coaching, uh, coaching people to you know, better health, this concept of coach, which is massive in medicine at the moment. It's a really emerging market. And, um, and you don't have to necessarily be like a doctor or a health specialist to become a, a health coach. Um, but the idea of like, you know, again, like empowering people to make better decisions for themselves, work out their path, what they want to achieve and their goals and helping them attain them. And, um, and so my wife kind of inspired me this whole thing that she was doing. She was doing all this, these qualifications in lifestyle medicine and coaching. And I thought, so why don't we do this in dentistry? Like, mm. this is so relevant to dentistry. And so I love this idea of, I'm, I don't you know, you can market yourselves in many ways, an aesthetic dentist, a cosmetic dentist, um, you know, implant guy, orthodontist, whatever you want to do, like, you know, guy with a special interest, guy or girl with a special interest in orthodontics, whatever you want to be. But I prefer the concept of being an oral health coach, you know, empowering people to make better decisions for them in their life, for their health, for their general health, for their oral health, um, to gain happiness and satisfaction. Mm. Um, and I, I know that yeah. minimal intervention dentistry is a big thing in your practice as well. And I suppose this goes hand in hand with that, right? It's oh, about pres- preserving your health and actually making the right decisions, you know, for your smile as opposed to, you know, maybe the cosmetic benefit of your smile. Yeah. I think a lot of because I mean one of the things that really got me was when I first came over the amount of people I mean we were still with the end of the the kind of like the oil and gas boom in 2014 and um and so things were dwindling a bit don't get me wrong Perth but they were still quite high and a lot, I'd get a lot of young you know you know patients who were in their early 20s to ask for veneers and things I'm seeing them think like wow your teeth need to be straightened a little bit you know just a bit of orthodontics and they'll be fine or maybe a bit of orthodontics and a bit of some light bonding. Mm. is all you need but they wanted this this really destructive treatment and you kind of felt like saying something like listen you know it's, it's your body it's yours but you've got to understand the impact of your decisions and you're trying to tell them like look i've got to draw your teeth you know you, you probably have to you may have to change every 10 years it's gonna cost you this much so you've got the finance not just to do it once in your life but every 10 years you're really young but then we start a restorative cycle nothing i do is going to last in your mouth forever Okay, so, you know, and every time we have to take away a little bit more of your tooth. So the veneers and replacing veneers will suddenly become like crowns, which may become root canals, which may become like posts and root canals, which may be extractions and implants through your life. We're starting this cascade. Um, and it's really something like, do you understand that before we do this or before we do anything? Mm. So I find I've, I've had I was selling people out of treatment, and I wasn't empowering them to make better decisions. I was just selling them out of treatment. Mm. They still wanted what they wanted. So whether they were then turning away from me and then going to someone else and then just going off what they thought they wanted anyway, I don't know. Um, but it was more about then, I really like, I had to give people solutions and options. And so, you know, um, it became more about like saying like, well, look, why don't we just, we don't actually need all this stuff. We just simply do some orthodontics, do some light bonding on your teeth. So, so orthodontics will straighten your teeth and look fantastic, a lot better. Because if you improve the function and form, you improve the aesthetics. Yeah. No. Yeah. But then and I th- there are shape issues. Yeah, well, we can just do some light bonding, some minimum intervention yeah. light bonding. And then it's like, well, we haven't destroyed your teeth. And if you don't like it, and uh, you know, you want to polish it down, polish it away, we can polish it away and get rid of it. Mm. And we haven't destroyed or impacted on your teeth. And I think people, and what I found, especially through scanning and things and showing like, you know, 3D simulations and using like CAD CAM and dentistry and like computer aided design and, and smiles like we could then show them like, look, this is what it could look like. This is what it means for them. And we can communicate better. And that, that plan made a massive difference. Definitely. And I suppose that, that conversation is what is so powerful is being able to say, look, you know, this is the impact of what you're trying to do versus this is what we're actually capable of doing without that. And I suppose digital dentistry has unlocked that for dental professionals, the ability to scan your teeth and be able to actually, you know, with design files and whatnot show, hey, look, this is exactly what we can achieve, you know, with X, Y, Z treatments. Uh, it's and, great because yeah. I, I can even say like a patient says to me I want veneers and things I said well, okay well look here's a quick simulation of what your teeth would look like if it was straightened and here's a simulation of what they look like um, and here is um, I get a file a 3D file um, from a from my lab and they, they'll do a, what we call a digital wax up 
and they can make transparencies of the of the veneers we'd have to do and go look this hunk have to shave away this is what the bulk's going to be like of your tooth this is what we have to do to your teeth by the way to get them to this point mm. and then they understand the impact of the decision they're making because it's hard for a lay person to conceptually understand what we're trying and we see this stuff every day we know what it means we understand the long-term implication but they don't like you know if a if a technical person comes into my house and know fixing up something i don't know or fixing my in my car let's say for example i've got no idea about cars if a mechanic goes oh yeah this problem with this and that way i, I don't know that means mm. i just want it to work Definitely. like at the end of the day you know someone tells me my spark plugs plugs are gone or carb i don't know whatever it's called i don't know i wouldn't have fluid, a clue yeah. <laughs> I, I just i just wouldn't have a clue other than like changing the oil changing my tire <laughs> changing the the water you know change the you know the windscreen wiper fluid stuff like i really don't know that much i can probably change the lights on my car though in modern cars getting it's getting harder and harder i think like with all the circuitry gadgets mm. that are going on now but I, I don't understand i'm just a lay person i don't understand the inner working details and so i very much depend on that person to guide me to the best decision for me and my car and just the same with like a health professional you know lay people and general patients don't understand the implication sometimes so it's up to us to guide them and show them and that's one of the things why i love like things like neary technology like so we're seeing now in like a lot of modern scanners that even like carries detection technology and so i love the fact that without an x-ray and things and even if you've got patients who are really anti-radiation and x-rays even though we know this safe in dental in dentistry we can provide a non-radiation um uh, investigation like near infrared and find early decay in their mouth and go hey look it's going on your mouth that we we need to assess the depth and stuff would probably indicate it for an x-ray and they go yeah okay sure why not versus or even say to them like okay well actually i can't see any evidence of decay in your mouth we can let this one go we'll, we won't take an x-ray today and things and it's such a better conversation such a healthier mm. conversation um and then even if we find early decay we can do minimal intervention because we can find it early so we can we can say like oh look there's something going on here but we don't know if there's like you know it's just into the dentine like a lot of dentists will be told in dental school if it's just into dentine the outer third you know you got to drill the tooth and you take away all this good tooth substance yeah however you know the evidence shows us that 65 percent of you know what we call d1 lesions the outer third of dentine will not have a cavitation and if it hasn't got a cavitation into proximally we don't need to drill the tooth so we can simply get like ortho bands, separate the teeth, have a look. And if there's no cavitation, we can either choose to just give them hygiene advice, like, you know, just floss and fluoride, or we can use modern like materials like resin infiltration, like things like Icon, where we put um, a resin material that absorbs into the tooth and seals it off that demineralized tooth and protects mm. it with no drilling. Mm. And we haven't got rid of all this healthy tooth. So we're reducing the biological cost, mm. the teeth. And that's where it's really key, like biological cost. Like, you know, when we do an intervention, we have to think about not just the financial cost, but the biological cost. Where is yeah. it going long-term? Like how are we destroying what's in their mouth? Because as I said, nothing's going to last forever. When you change the tires on your car, we don't think those tires are going to last us, you know, forever and a day. We know we're going to have to replace it at some point. And same with you know, when it comes to your gearbox, your engine, whatever, like they will have a, a finite lifespan, lifetime. And so we've got to think about the implications of what we do and how regularly we change things and you know, how that impacts on everything else, you know, how that impacts on the nerve, like how deep we're going, you know, are we going to end up like putting person towards a root canal treatment within their lifetime hmm. and so forth. And tell, crowns me this, and, yeah. tell me about this band, uh, situation that you spoke about before how you separate the teeth you have a look because i remember you yeah, mentioned this so last time we spoke and i found it really interesting the way that you kind of avoided such an extreme procedure because you, all you're trying to do ultimately is lower the biological cost so how yeah. can you do that in a gentle way that still lets you achieve the same outcome oh so it's really simple like the thing so we know that so what you do so if i'm so i scan them every patient at every point i strongly believe it's worth scanning them and if i using my neary scan if i see decay in their mouth um, and say it doesn't correlate with the x-ray or, um, or, you know, like it looks like a, it's just in, so we, so we split the enamel into two halves, like we call E1 and E2. Mm -hmm. E1 is the outer half, E2 is the inner half of the enamel. And then the dentine towards, going towards the nerve is split to D1, D2, D3. 
So D1 is the outer third and D3 is the inner third by the nerve. Mm -hmm. So E1 and E2 lesions, enamel lesions, you don't need to drill. You don't, so we, we know if we see that in the, on an X-ray, we don't need to drill it at all. But when it gets to D1, there's a 65% chance that it will have no cavitation. 35% it does have the cavitation. So we're kind of playing the odds game. We don't actually look at the tooth. So sometimes if they've got no lesions, um, sometimes I don't worry too much about it. Like they're low risk. I go, like, okay, let's review this. Um, but if, there's, if the risk based on their oral hygiene, their previous exposure to caries is like higher, then I'll take like an orthodontic separating band. It's like a small lackey band. Mm -hmm. um, and so what happens, orthodontists use this to place between molar teeth and then put the, and put the metal bands on that use for braces, braces, like the bands and brackets and so forth. That's how they separate the teeth to put the, the met metallic um, circumferential band on. Mm -hmm. But you can separate the teeth by about a millimeter or so. So what happens is the band, you stretch the band with two pieces of floss, you ease it in between the teeth. And as it contracts, over about three days to four days, it separates the teeth a little bit, opens up the space. And then you take your probe and you just rub it on the and you don't even have a look directly. And you can see, and if there's no cavitation on the tooth, you don't have to drill the tooth mm. because it won't be going deep. It won't be ex extending because often like an X-ray lags behind the clinical picture. So, um, so what happens is that you don't have to do anything. So simply if, if a patient's coming in for a long appointment, and they're having fillings on another tooth and we're checking, we're checking early lesions in between elsewhere in that same appointment, I'll offer to do like resin infiltration to seal and protect the tooth and, and prevent the progression of the, um, of, of the lesion. Mm -hmm. And we haven't had to then drill that tooth or damage that tooth in any way. And we've saved all that good, good tissue. Because often in these earlier, earlier lesions of caries, when you drill it, you're taking away so much, you take away more good, healthy tooth than bad tooth or you know, decay process and pathology. Like it, it's, it, it feels awful mm. to do it. So you kind of think like, well, how can I minimize this impact? But if we, yeah, but by all means, if we see a cavitation, we know we have to drill, we have to take our drill to it because otherwise it will be more costly for them in the long term if we leave it. It will only like extend towards their nerves. So, um, so that, that's a, a much healthier way of doing things, a much better way, a much you know, in, less impactful way of doing things uh, yeah, in, terms right. of, um, in terms of like biological cost. Mm. Um, and then we could, but then, you know, if the, if the person doesn't come in for another intervention, we can always often say like, hey, well, actually look, floss and fluoride improve your interproximal health um, and improve your hygiene and then we'll review it but i prefer the idea of keeping under active observation um which is again why i like intraoral scanners and technology because like for example a lot of dentistry a lot of dentists will say to a dent, uh, say to a patient like you know you're having orthodontic relapse your teeth are moving or you're having wear and like one of my major um uh, like mentors with orthodontists is a guy called um dr andy toy and he talks about the, the ING conversation, the ING conversation. And it's always like, you know, your teeth don't just wear, they're wearing. Your teeth don't just move, they're moving. You know, right. we, yeah, we, yeah. We, it's dynamic. It's dynamic. Mm. So it's constantly going on through our lives. So, you know, you don't say like, oh, my teeth are just, I, oh, I just grind my teeth. I've stopped grinding them now. You probably haven't, in fairness. You're probably still doing some kind of parafunctional habit through your life and it'll just get worse. So I always have a conversation about three things you can do to your patients. Look, you can do nothing. You can, uh, which is basically just keep it under observation. Two, you can um, protect, say like, look, I don't want to do anything about it actively, but I want to protect it and stop getting worse. So you stabilize it. And that could be a splint or like for orthodontics to be a retainer. So I accept my smile as it is. I just want a retainer. Or three, say like, I want to make it better. And then you can correct it and then protect it. And those are three options. And you can do that for most things in dentistry. Mm. Um, and but then if you, they choose to do nothing and they say like look I don't want I'm not going to wear like a splint or a tans at night time um, and I don't want to correct it that's fine it's their choice they're allowed to make that decision you know that's ethical dentistry you know free will and choice mm. but saying that we'll observe it and they're not actually you know observing it properly that's that's you know that's passive and that's actually technically supervised neglect if my patient comes to me in two years' time and says, like, Rohit, you told me I'm wearing my teeth or my teeth are moving, how much have they worn or how much have they moved? And I go, I don't know. 
Uh, that's not really a good conversation or a healthy conversation. But if I scan a patient with my Itero, I can scan them again every six months, year, two years. And I can do what we call a time lapse. I can superimpose the images and I can show them up to 0.05 millimeters of wear or movement or recession of their gums and go, look, it's getting worse. We can extrapolate that to like one year, two years, five years, 10 years. Go, look, this is where it's going. This is only gonna get more expensive for you, more complicated for you. Are you happy with this? And if they're not, well, maybe we should do something. But then again, that empowers the patient to make that decision. If they don't know what's going on in their mouth, how can they make that decision? Yeah, and there's a lot of dentists out there that are starting to take that decision back off the patient a little bit, like certain situations where the patient might need a full suite of treatment to be performed. And the dentist is in the position where they're like, okay, well, we need to do all of these things. But in reality, there's a lot of people out there who struggle to afford, you know, even a set of fillings versus, you know, an entire, you know, full suite of new treatment. Um, and it's like what you said before, that doesn't make you any less of a dentist for just having to be able to provide them with yeah. some care that they can afford or get done what they absolutely need to get done now. Exactly. I think, I think, I mean, I think like when I was at King's, like it was all, there was a lot of like push for like treatment planning and how, how do you treatment plan patients? And we just got like, it got hammered onto you, like being, being good at treatment planning, especially your final year. Mm. Um, it was always about like, and it, it always was like, number one, pain, get a patient out of pain. And, and quite often, so I've had, always had this ethos of like, before I let a patient make a decision about what they want to do, you have to get out of pain first and then make a decision because we'll often make bad decisions out of desperation for ourselves. True. But even sometimes when a patient, when a patient goes, like, they got a tooth out, go, oh, just get the tooth out, get the tooth out. I would say like, look, Let's get you out of pain first, and then you tell me if you want this tooth out or not. And then off, and then understand the implications of like financially or biologically what it means to lose this tooth. And I find that's often a better way of doing things. So I kind mm -hmm. of always, I've always believed like, you know, get a patient out of pain. And then after that, it's about stabilization. So perio and caries. So perio is a foundation. So get everything right. If you get control the gums, healthy gums and bone around the teeth, healthy foundations. Idealize that because there's no point in doing, you know, like crowns and complex restorations and stuff if the teeth are going to end up wiggling in the wind and they end up losing them. Get the foundations right, and of course stabilize then any like um, decay and stuff in the meantime. You know, uh, and then only once all this stuff is stabilized can you move on to the, the fun stuff. You know, like the the orthodontics and the uh, and the indirect restorations and like you know the small makeovers and stuff because without that without the foundations everything's going to go to pot mm. but sometimes they can't afford this and as you say and like and, and we've spoken about this like access to healthcare you know um and it's all well and good you know say so like giving people like big treatment plans and sometimes they just can't afford it it's not realistic for them and so how do we break that down into a number of years how do we break that down so they understand the value and make small transformations that motivate them? Mm. And so that's what it becomes about making small transformative changes that improves their life, that improves the quality of their chewing, their eating, their function, that motivates them. Because if they understand that and if they're motivated, they'll look after their teeth better. They'll look after the restorations better. They understand the impact. And sometimes you just have to accept you have to do a bit of patchwork here and there yeah. with a longer, bigger goal going forward uh, and, and I've, I've had like you know i always kind of thought i think patchwork dentistry was like the devil in dentistry you know <laughs> like that you know like you, you're somehow like you, and i felt like bad if i ever did it i thought i was doing like lesser work um and because you, i think especially in the age of social media you see all these fancy treatments done like these big like crown bridge implant treatments and we think like oh that's what i should aspire to um, and it's like that or nothing, like you get that or nothing that, yeah. that takes the decision away from the patient. You know, if they can't afford it, then what do they do? They let things get worse. Yeah. And they find themselves in a worse position. And so it do like, like I've had like, I mean, I'm lucky. Like, I've, I mean, I've, I mean, I've paid for mentorship and things as well. I've had people like, and it's interesting, even like people like Lincoln Harris, who do like amazing treatment. You see their stuff on like, you know, online and, uh, and, and even he talks about like, you see, looking go through the cases, you'll see him talk about like, how he temporizes cases to get, and temporizes them like this and does it over many, many years. Um, and we, but we, we just see the befores and afters and we think like, oh, this is amazing. And, and when he set up things like, you know, his ripe um, uh, forum on Facebook, which I strongly recommend everyone should be like, look, join a look. He had this whole vision of like, 
I'm sick of before and after. Let's see the stages you took. To, you have to tell us what stages you took to get there. You mm. can't just post before and after. You want to see where you started, how you got there, endpoint and follow-ups if you can provide follow-up. And I love that whole concept. And, and that's really sharing knowledge. Absolutely. And you're not just showing the win, you're showing the journey to the win. Right? Exactly. What it actually takes to be able to be you know, great like that and what it takes to achieve that. Mm. Exactly. I think in the age of social media, it's very easy to, think, to get down on yourself and think like, oh, the work I do is like rubbish and all this stuff. And, um, you know, but you've got to like, I think, understand like often people just post their best cases. Yeah. Um, and when, when you go on the groups where people post their fails, it's, it's really powerful because suddenly you're like, oh my God, I've been there. And it takes a very strong and brave dense, I think, to show that. And I love I, I love those posts more. Yeah. I love those mentors who've told me like, look, this is how I've stuffed up. Mm. Don't stuff up like this. This is what I've learned. And I, I hope that you learn from these mistakes I've made. And that's again, like people like Lincoln who's, who's spoken to me over time, they're like, look, uh, this is what the things I've done that are wrong. I wish I'd done this better. Um, this is what I've learned and this is why I'm trying to teach this way because this is what I learned from those past experiences. It's um, real at the end of the day as well. I mean, it's all in the name of, you know, providing better uh, better care for people. Um, it's not about, you know, it's not gloating or saying, look how good I am at the end of the day. It's no, turning it's around and saying, look, here are the mistakes that I've made so you don't have to make them so that all of your patients don't have to, you know, experience those mistakes either. So I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of merit to that. Yeah, I think it's funny, like, you, you, but I remember you would say candidly in these courses, like, you know, like you're gonna make some, you're gonna ignore me. Like half of you will ignore me, just make your own mistakes. But you know, that's for some of you, that's how you have to learn. And it's true. Like some people just have to learn by making mistakes. And mm. um, but if you can learn from like mentors and people, that, that that really helps or helps mitigate some of those mistakes that you'll make. Yeah, and we're gonna yeah, make yeah. them a human at the end of the day. We we're gonna make mistakes. You know, we're gonna make sometimes we're gonna make some bad decisions. And and unfortunately, healthcare it impacts on someone. That's that's the nature of the beast. Mm. Um, I think the, the key is not to get too down on yourself, not to get too hard on yourself, yeah. but actually just like try and learn from it, talk to people, reflect on it. And reflection's massive. That's what we need to do as a profession, actually get better reflection, mm. reflecting on like, you know, the decisions we've made, how we've done differently, how that would impact um, and, how, you know, how we, where are we going to go like going forward? Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, speaking of role models, Rohit, we are just about to run up out of, out of time. So I really want to quickly get to this because I know you're going to have a lot of great, great answers to my questions, but we do a segment at the end of every episode called Quick Fire Questions. And pretty much what we're talking about now covers a couple of them. So I thought we might jump straight in and uh, hear your responses. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Well, the first question is in the early days of your career, did you have a role model? I've talked about in my undergraduate, like, sorry, my, in medicine, like I had like good colleagues around me, like Nabs and Pan, and they were fantastic. And then I think like, um, but then I come into dental school, like I was surrounded by like people who were amazing, like Sabir Banerjee, like I think everyone knows Sabir Banerjee because he does one of the MSc for like um, the aesthetics and restorative things. I never really, like he only used to walk onto clinic, but we knew who he was and mm. he was like very inspirational character. But then like the people, the, some of the people who really impacted my life were like people like, uh, Tim Watson, um, who was amazing in uh, restorative work. He took me in that, in, those, in that three years I did dentistry. Really, he's an amazing person. He's, he's developed so many like dental products and um, and he's pretty big in biomaterials. Richard Cook in oral medicine was amazing. He took me under his wing in my final year or two of dentistry um, and really got me into research and academics and things. Like he was an amazing guy. And then we had, and then like, like Eric Waits and Prof uh, Mark Wolford with two guys, Eric Waits is like my god of radiology, dental radiology. And uh, Mark Wolford was like quite high up in like Kings at the time. And um, I think he's still there, I don't know. Um, but they taught me about just being a better human being and actually a balance of life and dentistry. Um, I mean, it's not for me to discuss their stories of all these guys, but they've got amazing stories behind them beyond dentistry. And they taught me a lot about being a good human being, mm. um, a lot about valuing family um, uh, and life beyond dentistry. Mm. um and and actually how to and a, a better way to think about patients and i really feel they had a very holistic view of um kind of health and dentistry and you know being a good person mm. and um and also that idea that you know like don't go chasing money and things you know um you know just focus your early years of your career at getting good getting good at everyday dentistry doing the right treatment plans treating patients well and then eventually you know with that 
professional ability, professional status, and finance, all those things will get good if you just focus on all those, like, you know, just do good quality dentistry early on. So I suppose you don't have one role model, one role model. You've got a big accumulation of a lot of experiences that you've had with a ton of different people over the years, right? Just lots of little people. I was never lucky enough to have that one good person who took me under their wing and then, and and then pushed me through and propelled me through um, like my life, career, dentistry and whatever. Like it was always, you know, like my, my parents and then like people I interacted with in, in my profession, they did small steps and small journeys that led me to bigger things you know mm. like um and then coming to dentistry they're like 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 I, I mean one person i love not just because they're an amazing dentist like someone like barat agrawal like he is a phenomenal dentist and i'm insanely jealous of the guy's skill i mean i don't know many people who seamlessly blend indirect and direct restorations um and and they follow that minimal intervention um philosophy um but other than that he's an amazing communicator and that's what I think I love. Like, you know, I love that communication and stuff. And it's not something that's taught, I think, over, overwhelmingly well within dentistry at the moment. Like, because we have, as dentists, you've got to learn so much practical skill through dental school. You don't have much time to hone in on communications, which is key to patient interaction. Mm. And he's always really, really nailed that whole communication within the profession and with patients. And I find that amazing. Mm. No, I think that's and- honestly a really good answer to that question because it's, it's, it's more realistic too, because you're right. Not everybody has that one person that puts them under their wing and says, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll show you the rope. So I think it's all about trying to find those really valuable moments with everybody that you meet in your career and finding what you can take with your, with yourself to, to that next step. Yeah. And I like that a lot. Like, yeah. I, I think, I think it's, the truth is like, honestly, like, I'd love to have met that one person who took me on the wing and then, you know, coached me up and then gave me their practice. And mm. then like, I knew how to run a practice and be an amazing dentist and do all this amazing work. But mm. I think you realize, you know, if you don't get that, which is the majority of us are not going to get that. And actually, when I, we're going to have to either have to take a lot of time learning or pay uh, to do it. And so, I, I mean, I, I chose to, like, it, it was taking me too long mm. to learn all the things I wanted to learn. So I ended up choosing to pay to go and do courses and things. And I did like Lincoln Harris's courses and, and he was amazing and instrumental to my restorative journey. And now he's taken me on, you know, on board as one of his educators. And I just like, it's just kind of come full circle for me in that sense. Mm. And I just like, it's, I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to then impart that knowledge that I've gained on others. Um, and so that's been a great journey for me and stuff as well. Like coming, I think all healthcare professionals want to become an educator. Yeah. True. You know, because we, we're constantly, we, we spent a whole large part of our life being educated mm. and then educating patients. And wanting and to pass that on, yeah. You want to pass exactly. that on. You've learned some great skills and you're, like, you're eager to teach. Like most of us are eager to teach. Hmm. And my mother was a teacher. I really admired that. I loved that. Like, um, and uh, I, respect that. I respected that so much. Um, and I think like that was also a big part of like what I want to do. Like I love teaching so much. I think that's, and so I think like if you ever feel like clinically, like, you know, life's not, you know, you want to do more than just being in the clinic all day long and seeing patients. I think like, that's the other thing that's, that you can do, like teach, and that gives you a much better overall career and stuff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you kind of killed two birds with one stone there because, I mean, you've answered two questions in one. So, I mean, we'll jump to the third one because I'm actually really keen to hear this because it's such yeah. an interesting question for so many dental professionals. And we're actually finding we're getting the same answer a lot of the time. So if this wasn't your profession, what would you be doing instead? I, I kind of like I kind of think I would say one of the things that like a lot of people have said in the past and that was like I did think about doing architecture <laughs> that's exactly the, the one is, I was talking about but but, but truth is um, the last I think 15 or so years I've always dreamt of having my own gallery I've always wanted to have an art gallery um, and a print house and, like combine the two I don't know if that's ever going to happen in my lifetime or not I still would still dream of it but I think when I was um, I used to, when I was in med school I, my housemate was an architect um, or t- was studying architecture a guy called Roger and I, he was one of my best mates. And um, he bought me a book on my 19th birthday called Street Logo. And I had like things like Banksy, Pixel Phil, like Space Invader, yeah, right. uh, D-Face and all these amazing street artists. And it just blew my mind. And suddenly I just, I, lo- I, was, I was enamored in love with like art and street art. And then later on contemporary art, and I started collecting and going to gallery shows and started uh, doing some art consultancy on the side for a few little people and things. I met loads of wonderful people through it. Um, and so I love the world of art and street art and contemporary. And so I, I just, I've always had some mini dream that, you know, have a small print house and 
and, and help establishing artists and uh, you know build a name for themselves by pairing them with like large artists. Mm. That might be a pipe dream. I don't know. Like, I, no, I, I, don't, I, don't think, I think it's realistic. For, I think I, it's I very realistic. Yeah. yeah. And I, I look, it's not too late either. It's definitely something that you know exactly. you, you still got time for. Only 38. There's loads of time. For <laughs> yeah, to time. Exactly. Well, I mean, yeah, you switch from being a surgeon to a dentist. I mean, you know, physio is next or something, right? Yeah. Well, like, it's funny. Like, I, was, I, I worked, I worked through med school as a nurse, and like that was like an eye-opening thing as well. Like, mm. uh, I sold door and door-to-door gas and electric through med school as well. Jeez. Like, it was. It was fun, but each each of those things bring you a, teach you a skill set, you know, Absolutely. communicating, talking to people, like talking to people on their level. You know, I I think that there these are all quality things that help mm. you. Absolutely, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, well, speaking of you know quality life lessons, that brings us to our next question. For all of the young people who are currently finishing their degrees and are about to enter the industry, what is your biggest piece of advice for them? Don't run before you can walk. Come out. Take your time and just get good at everyday dentistry. Don't chase money. Finance will just make you make bad decisions. I think if you chase coin, you'll make bad decisions. You know, don't try and do implants year one of qualifying on orthodontics. You know, spend time, just get good at like standard routine, like restorations, doing them aesthetically and nicely, doing good endodontic treatment, restoring, preserving teeth, minimum intervention. I mean, if you get good at those things, you know, and communication, like they're the foundation for everything and then learn occlusion well. And then that's the foundation then for orthodontics, like big restorative work. And then you can learn all those big, big fancy things, but spend the first couple of years just really honing your practice. And like, and then as I said, like, you know, professionally you'll go far um, and you'll, and finance will follow. If you just, if you just like concentrate on being like a good person, delivering good high quality care, you'll do well. Well, Dr. Rohit, it has been an incredible episode. Thank you so much for joining us on Dental IQ. Personally, I've learned so much and I'm really looking forward to having you back on soon. So until then, take care of yourself and uh, we'll see you soon. Oh, my pleasure, mate. It's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Dental IQ. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow us and leave a rating. And you can also find us on Instagram at dental underscore IQ. If you'd like to join us on Dental IQ or have any topics that you want us to cover, you can reach me at fabio at dentaliq.com.au. Thank you so much for joining us again. We hope to catch you next week. Dental IQ is produced by Highsmile.